If you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, our passage for today. John the Apostle writes, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3, Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this most remarkable miracle that you exercised through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might have this revelation and that it might be clear to us this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would teach us these eternal truths that are here in this passage. Show us as well, Father, this better feast that you've called us to, this better food that you've called us to, that we might seek you for who you are, the one true living God, and know your Son for who he is, our Lord and Savior and King. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us this time with your Holy Spirit, knowing that we cannot worship you apart from him. And by your grace and mercy, Lord, enable me, a sinner, to proclaim the gospel and we, sinners, our ears to hear and repent and believe this morning that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good morning. So when we get to chapter 6, we, uh, we come upon the, the feeding of the 5,000. It is one of those miracles that most people know about, whether you're in the church or not in the church. It's a it's a very popular miracle, and so when we look at it today, I want you to take a lot of the stuff that you probably are brought in with it. You know, if you've learned stuff in Sunday school, it might not be appropriate or even right for that matter. So by God's grace, you'll actually hear what the passage has to say, and we'll be able to work it out in such a way that we'll glean the right truths from it. If you were here last week, uh, we finished up John chapter 5, and, and Jesus finished that incredible dialogue slash monologue with the Jews that were there trying to kill him. He was in Jerusalem, and if you remember, he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, and they were accusing him, one, of violating the Sabbath law, which he, of course, did not. But worse, they were saying to him, what? 
They said, you're making yourself equal to be God. And so he went from verse 19 all the way through verse 47, explaining to them that indeed he is God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that he is their Savior. And of course, their response to that is, we're going to kill you. Okay, and that was their response to it. And so when we pick up here in, in John chapter 6, time has passed, and John's going to give us, John's going to record the sixth miracle in this, I mean the fourth miracle in this gospel. He only records seven. You remember our first one, John chapter 2? He turned water into wine. John chapter 4, I, maybe I can just give you guys a quiz on this. John chapter 4, do you remember what he did? He healed the royal servant's sick son who was dying. He did that from afar. John chapter 5, we saw that last week. And two weeks ago, he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And so here we have this fourth miracle that's recorded. And it is a miracle that, that all four gospels, in fact, it's the only miracle other than the resurrection that all four gospels record. Now, that's, that's significant, and we want to say, well, well why did John do that here? Uh, it certainly is a miracle that, that the most people experienced. Anywhere from twenty to 25,000 people were, were blessed by Jesus and that food and that fish that day. And so, we want to know, we, want to know, we do know that the miracles, all the miracles point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Remember, the Father is testifying to the Son, to mankind, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Savior. So they all do that. But if, if John has probably thousands of miracles to choose from, we have to say, well, why did he pick these? Why did he pick this one? Especially in light of the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already recorded it. Why would he pick it? Um, I, I, wanna, I want us to answer that question today because I think it's going to bring stuff out of this passage that we may not have seen otherwise. Um, I, I want to rejoice over the fact that this miracle is here for us and that we can rejoice over the fact that the Father testifies to the, to the fact that Jesus Christ is his Son. And so we want to rejoice in that. We want to revel in that. And I want to show you three truths that will come out of it. And if you have ears to hear this morning, and it will require that, it will require you listening by the power of the Holy Spirit, then by God's grace you will grow in your fidelity and your love for this Jesus Christ, for this Son of God. Because that's why this parable is here. So three things I want to show you from the feeding of the 5,000. One, man's wrong seeking. Number two, man's wrong thinking. And number three, God's right loving. Now, if you are cognizant at all, you're going to say these first two points I'm probably not going to like very much. Your flesh will not like it, but by God's grace, your spirit will. Man's wrong seeking, man's wrong thinking, and by God's grace, God's right loving. First point, man's wrong seeking. Look at verse one with me. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, again, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, so we're now in chapter 6, and in chapter 6, we have anywhere from six months to a year has transpired since we left the dialogue with the Jews in the temple over the invalid, okay? So a significant time has transpired. They're back in Galilee. They're back engaged in the Galilean ministry, which was anywhere from a year to 14 months, depending upon your timeline. And in this exact moment, we have Mark chapter 6 tells us, fills in these details. The disciples had gone out into Galilee, and they were, they were teaching the gospel, they were exercising demons, they were healing the sick, and they had just come back to Jesus. And so they're tired. They've been working really hard. And not only that, we also find out at this exact time the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. 
Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist. And so this is the news that's coming to them. And so our Lord, being the, the great shepherd that he is, he says, you know what, guys? We've we got to get away, and we've got to spend some time in prayer, and I've got to get you to, to relax a little bit. I, I want you. He's, he's planning a respite for them, a downtime for them. In fact, we're told in Mark chapter 6, Verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And then it says in verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they went from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to um, the west side to the east side to get away from the, the towns and the people. Now, the problem is by this time in our Lord's ministry, you know, a year and a half in, maybe even more than that, his reputation precedes him. And so everywhere he goes from now on, unless he goes to hide, there are hundreds or thousands of people that are following him. Uh, Look at verse 1 and 2 again. It says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd was following him. He actually went away, this place that he went to, it it was a desolate place, and and most, most Bible students believe it's up in the Golan Heights area, and you probably know about that from reading your, your news reports. We hear a lot about the Golan Heights right now. It's a, it's a hotbed of contention. Um, so there, he's probably in that area. But remember, he went away. He, he was taking the disciples there to rest. But his plan was ruined because <laughs> this image is fantastic. The people see him in the boat and they just start running. And they run by the thousands on the seashore trying to catch up with him. We know this from Mark chapter 6. It says, many Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Listen to this, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And so our, our, our Lord's plan was to get the disciples, get them to a desolate place, and, and pray and relax and regroup. And when he gets there, there are thousands of people waiting for him. And our Lord didn't say, you know what, this is our vacation time, we're taking some time off. It says he has compassion for them because they are people as though they do not have a shepherd. And so he teaches, and we know from the Gospel of Mark, he does more healings, and so they're right back into the ministry. They're engaged in ministry again. But I want you to notice something about these people. Look at verse 2 with me again. John reveals something telling. He said, a large crowd was following him, and here's the reason, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They saw what he was doing with the sick. Now, it's Passover, so it's, it's late March, early April, sometime in there it's springtime, and therefore there, there would have been lots of pilgrims making their way down to Jerusalem. So we probably had more than just Galileans here in this group. Um, and, and I think that's important because what Paul, what um, John is revealing here and the Holy Spirit is revealing is the, the condition of the human heart. We have a large crowd, upwards of twenty to 25,000 people running after Jesus on foot to intercept him. But the purpose for which they wanted to get into his presence was not to worship him, was not to know him as the Son of God, it was not to revere him as the Messiah, it wasn't even to recognize him as uh, the Savior of the world. Look at verse 2 again. It was because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, that gives us two categories of people. Those who were there to, to watch a miracle. It was a novelty act, and it would have been quite impressive. Or those who were sick that wanted to be healed. In which case, they were there not because they wanted God for God, Christ for Christ. They were there to use Jesus. And at this point in time, he had exercised so many miracles. And the miracles were real, and they were instantaneous. 
And, and you, we understand why. If, if Christ were to, to exercise that power now, even in the Western world, even with all of our modern medicine, if he were to show up here on this day and people knew about it, there'd be thousands waiting outside to be touched by him and to be healed by him, right? But we're talking about a time centuries before any particular de- disease was diagnosed or clinically treated. And so when you were sick and when you were suffering, there, there wasn't a lot of help for the ailments. And so they came to Christ. They wanted to be healed by Christ. But that was their motivation. They, they saw him. They saw him as a witch doctor, uh, an unprecedented and unparalleled healer. But that's, that's really all they saw him as. Remember, he's in Galilee here. This is his hometown. And in his hometown, he's not going to be received as the prophet that he is. They're not going to see him as that. And so Christ is there, and he's going to heal, and he's going to teach, but they're not receiving him as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And as we read this, we see that there are things in history that just never change, right? The same thing repeats itself over and over, and even more so today than in other times in human history. In fact, the, within the context of Christianity, and I'll use this umbrella loosely, Do you know what the fastest growing segment of so-called Christianity is in the world today? Do you know what it is? 25% of those who profess Christ make up one of these categories. The term, the the grouping term is renewalist. I will give you terms that you know. Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith, wave. These are all movements within within so-called Christianity, so-called Christianity, that are growing the most rapidly. You say, well, why is that? Why do over 500 million people on this planet find themselves in one of those categories? Because they take very seriously, verse 2, those who go to Christ because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so they go to him for what reason? They want to be healed. They want to be financially prosperous. They want to have their best life now. And so that's why they go to Christ, and that's why they go to church. What we have here is the revelation of the human condition of the human heart. In fact, David said it well in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And his conclusion is this. This is God's conclusion. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In fact, so right was David that Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, when he says, no one seeks after God, no, not one. Fallen sinful man, we seek after the blessings of God. We want, we want the healings. We want success. We want power. We want our marriages to be right. We want, we want our jobs to go well. And so we come after God to get things from God rather than to know who God is. And just like the, the Galileans here, we may extend great effort. I mean, these, some of these people were going miles on foot to get to him. And it may even have the appearance of sincere faith. But they did not have it. The apostles making that very clear. John reveals that this large crowd following Jesus reveals indeed all mankind. That no man, listen closely, no man seeks after God unless that man is born again. No one goes after God for the right reasons unless God first makes that man alive. Because the dead heart and the dead man goes after God to use God. To get what? To get, give me the healing, get me the job, get me the wife, get me the children. It's not God for God. They're not seeking him for him. 
They, we, people don't go, apart from being saved by grace, people don't go to church for Christ. You know, there are people, probably by the thousands, maybe even by the millions in church this morning across this land that are in church for reasons other than worship. Maybe, maybe they just lost their job and they, they come here and think, if I pray hard, maybe God will get me another job. Well, that's not God for God, that's using God. Or maybe their marriage is on, on, on the brink and they're saying, if I come to church and maybe if I put a little money in the basket or maybe if I help a poor person, maybe God will restore my marriage. That's witch doctor. Only those who have been born again, given a new heart, can seek God for God. And then we must have a pure heart. It must be a heart that God gives us through Christ or we will never, ever seek him and we will never, ever find him. To the Babylonians to the Jews that were in Babylon, just after, toward the end of their captivity, God said this to the people through the prophet Jeremiah. This is telling. He said in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me. So there's going to be a time now where I'm going to bring you back into the land. You're going to seek me and you're going to find me. But listen to this. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with what? With all your heart. Well, that's difficult for sinful man because our heart is all dead. And it needs to be made alive in order for us to seek after God for the right reasons, in order for us to come to God for the sake of God, because of who He is, because of who Christ is. God does nothing in your life, physical healing, providing a job, a marriage, children. If He does nothing, He is worthy of being sought after. He is worthy of being worshipped. He is worthy of us coming and gathering and singing and praying and serving and loving because he's God. He's God, period. And he's worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. Even if he doesn't answer a single prayer of yours as you want it to be answered. But in order for that, you've you got to be made alive. You will never seek after God unless God first comes and seeks you and finds you. And that means anybody who is truly seeking after God has already been sought by God and found by God. Anybody who's really coming after God, he's already done that great work in your heart because you must have a right heart. And apart from God giving you a right heart, you're still dead. You got a heart of stone. One of the reasons the renewalists and all of their false religions are so popular today is because they cater to the, low, the lower seeking, the lower desires. They will open up their doors and they will say, you come here and I'll say a prayer, I'll put my hands on you or I'll throw a little water on you and God will heal you or God will prosper you or God will give you money or give you a job and they flock by the thousands. In this place, we could drive a few miles and go to those churches today. They're here, but they're not pursuing Christ. They're not worshiping God. They're only listening to these liars who tell them lies because that's what their dead hearts want to hear. They promise health. They promise physical health without spiritual health. They promise restoration without submission. They promise things like peace without reconciliation before a holy God with whom we are at war. They promise things like power and popularity and success without humility, without dying, without decreasing that Christ might increase. These are all lies. These, these are, this is why the Galileans were seeking him. They wanted him to do something for him. They didn't want him for him. They did not see Jesus as the son of God. They saw him as a miracle worker only. He asked someone to come and meet their their immediate felt needs. So the first thing I want you to see as we look at this miracle is that they were there for the wrong reasons. And of course, the prayer today would be that you're not here for the wrong reasons. 
it's Sunday morning. People are in church on Sunday morning. But if you're here for any other reason than to worship God, listen, you're here for the wrong reasons. You're just like the Galileans seeking out the Savior to get a little food or, 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 or get a little money or get a little blessing. If you're here for that reason, that you need to repent of that immediately because there's no saving grace in that. And there's no hope in that. There's no solution temporally in that either, by the way. Nothing's going to happen here uh, of, of any good for you in that manner. So the first thing we seek, the first thing we see is our seeking is wrong because our hearts are wrong. We must be born again. But there's something else I want to show you from this passage that is wrong with us, and that is our thinking as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are you to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So after, after much teaching and much healing, probably the majority of the day, they probably were in the boat early in the day, the entire day they're teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, it had grown late, and the people were hungry. And we know this from the Gospel of Mark, verses 35 and 36, we're told this, it grew late, his disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place. There's no, there's no place to buy food here or get food. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, Jesus, he is the perfect teacher. He's the consummate teacher. And so he's going to take a crisis and he's going to test them. I love it when God does that. Not so much on me, right? But I love it when God does that. And he takes our times of crisis. He says, let's see here your faith. Let's see whether or not you truly have an understanding of who I am. And this is what Christ is going to ask. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I imagine Philip looking around going, there's nowhere to buy bread, Lord. Where are we going to buy bread that these people may eat? Some commentators actually suggest that Jesus intentionally detained them that he might set up an impossible situation a situation that human wisdom and reason and ingenuity could not solve. Makes sense, Christ would do that. It's late, the people are hungry, there is no food, and there is no good option. Even the towns nearby, I was trying to imagine 20,000 people coming here to Cambrian Park, going across the street to Armadillo Willie's or to Jack in the Box. Even our, even our fast food culture would struggle feeding twenty to 25,000 people. And here we are in the Golan Heights in the middle of nowhere with no fast food. It's an impossible situation. That's exactly what Christ wants. So he tells us in verse 6, it tells us Jesus knew what he was about to do. So this whole thing is being set up by him to grow his disciples' faith. He wanted Philip, in particular, he wanted Philip to contemplate everything that he had seen, everything that he had heard, all that he had learned, and he wanted Philip to respond to him in faith. Look at verse 5 again. Philip Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 7, Philip's answer. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A single denarii, a single, would be um, a day's wage, maybe, if that. So 200, you're looking at maybe eight months. And not only did they not have eight months of wages with them, but that would not have been enough to even give the people a little bit of food, let alone enough to feed them. Essentially, Philip is saying, this crowd is so big that if we had eight, eight months of wages, we couldn't even give them enough to be satisfied a little. And so he says, 
Send them away, Lord. Send them away so they can eat. Philip failed the test. Philip failed. Andrew, he did not fare much better. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Five barley loaves and two fish. John MacArthur said something so funny when I heard it. I laughed so hard. He said, 20,000 people and only one kid remembers to bring his lunch. I thought that was so great. That's it. I mean, and, and according to the Gospel of Mark, they went out and they looked for the food, and this is all they could find. Five barley loaves. They were actually, they weren't loaves of bread. They were, they were more like crackers. Um, they were thick crackers, and they were actually a staple of the poor. And the fish, you guys are probably thinking, you know, smoked salmon. These fish were pickled fish or salted fish. They were likely preserved. It was a, a primary pro, uh, um, uh, form of protein for the poor as well. This is all they have, and so Andrew rightly concludes, what good are five barley crackers and two pickled fish for so many? He says, what are they for so many? He said, the situation is impossible. Send them away. And this is their answer. Neither Philip nor Andrew nor any of the other disciples said, you know what? You might be able to do something about this, Lord. None of them saw the power or the desire of Jesus Christ to feed these people. And that's what Christ wanted them to see. That Jesus looked upon them with compassion and he said, there are people without a shepherd. He looked at them as though he loved them because he did. And he wanted them to see that too. In fact, I was contemplating this for the Apostle John. This must have been a convicting thing to write because he's standing there and he said nothing. He witnessed this whole thing. And yet, He didn't say anything. Philip did not. Andrew did not. John did not. Peter. Why wasn't Peter talking? Peter was always talking. Why didn't Peter say something here? Why didn't one of them turn to Christ and say, Lord, you know. You know, Lord, you can do this. Now, granted, they had never seen Jesus do, create something from nothing, right? This this creative type of miracle. They hadn't seen it yet, but they had seen enough. It was reasonable to conclude that they would come to him and say, you can do this. You can feed them. This is not impossible for you. Philip failed. Andrew failed. They all failed. Why'd they fail? Why'd they fail? The same reason that we fail in seeking God because our hearts are filled with sin. They, they failed in their thinking because their minds are fallen as well. They were only thinking as the fleshly mind thinks, in a one-dimensional, all-physical, only-now, circumstantial, matter, space, and time only. It's how they were thinking. And so they look around and they said, too many people, not enough food, not enough money, and they draw a, a human conclusion. There's nothing we can do. Send them away, Lord. Send them away. But we know what Christ wanted them to know That they were talking to whom? They're talking to the creator of the universe. They're talking to the second person of the holy triune God who created the universe. And he wants them to see that, that he is the one who made matter and space and time. And therefore, he's not bound by it. In fact, we know, because we established this clearly by God's grace in John chapter 1, verses 1 2 and 3, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then in verse 3 it says, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
This is the one who in six days spoke and created all that is seen and all that is unseen. That's who they're talking to. So feeding 20,000 people, it's not a big deal for the creator of the universe. If he can speak and bring all into being that is into being, then surely he can figure out how to feed 20,000 people in the Golan Heights with a little bread and a little fish. It was reasonable for Jesus to expect them to know this. And what it reveals is they cannot know this apart from God transforming their minds as well. They need a right heart to seek after God, and they need a right mind to understand and live in accordance with God. They weren't going to get it. They couldn't get it. Because the mind, apart from being born again, is completely dark. Paul made this clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the disciples are still thinking in their fleshly mind, their fleshly sense, and they're standing in the presence of the Creator, and they've seen all these miracles now for months and months, miracles that that caused people by the thousands to follow Jesus, and in their fleshly minds they think, oh, how are we going to feed him? There's no way to feed him. And what's so remarkable, and we'll get to this, the exact same problem arises again with 4,000 people, and they still don't get it. They don't go back and go, you know, you did this once. Why? They're not stupid. They're fallen. They're not stupid. They're not born again yet. And so we experience that too. Our thinking is that flawed and that dark apart from Christ giving us the understanding that we might see things spiritually, that our minds might see Christ rightly. This one-dimensional, physical only, in the presence of the supernatural. They suffered from it. We suffer from it. The disciples had seen hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles, and yet their minds were still arrested by sin. They couldn't get beyond it. Certainly you think one of them would say, maybe you can do this, Lord, and not one spoke. But this this is a theme we see throughout the entire Bible. When... When God supernaturally delivers Israel from the bondage in Egypt and he brings them out in the wilderness, one of their early complaints is what? We're going to die, lack of food, and lack of water. Now, they had just witnessed God Almighty supernaturally deliver them and destroy Pharaoh and his entire army in the Red Sea. This God that was so fantastic that brought all the plagues, destroyed Pharaoh, destroyed the army, brought them out, and he's not capable of feeding them food? He's not capable of bringing them water. The one who made water can't bring them water. You say, well, why does this happen? Because over and over and over again, we think with our fleshly minds. We forsake the Spirit of God that dwells in us. This is a theme that plays out over and again. God displays his supernatural power, his presence, his deliverance only for his people within a matter of days or weeks or months to completely forget that God is real that God is powerful, and that God is for them. And yet the Bible makes it clear, if you do not know this already, the spiritual realm is very real. The presence of God, the throne room of God, angelic beings, heaven and hell, divine power from on high to make food, to crush Pharaoh, to bring a Savior, to raise the dead, that's all real. That's all real. The Bible makes it equally clear that Jesus Christ is head over it all. It's all real, and Christ is the head. Paul said in Colossians 1.16, For by him, Christ, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So not only is the supernatural and the, and the spiritual realm real, the one who's in charge of it and overseeing it, and it's made for him and to him and through him is Christ. And that's who they're talking to. And by the way, that's who we're talking to. That's the one. So here the disciples are in an impossible situation in their minds. And Jesus tells them in, in Mark, 6, Mark 6, 37, we don't have this in John, Jesus actually commands them. He says, you, give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. They come to him and said, the people are hungry. Send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, feed them. And they had the ability to feed them by doing what? By turning to Christ and said, yes, feed them. By turning to Christ and saying, you can, Lord. You have the power. You have the ability to feed them. But they conclude it's hopeless. Their thinking failed. Jesus wanted them to turn to him instead of being distressed or despondent or hopeless. He wanted them like children to turn to him in faith and say, Lord, you know. Lord, you can. Lord, if you desire, feed them. And they could have. In fact, we're going to see here as this plays out, they actually, the disciples are the ones who actually give them the food, but it's God who makes it. So, This passage reveals to us that apart from being born again, we seek wrongly. We only seek after God to use God. This passage reveals that apart from being born again by the Holy Spirit, we think wrongly. We think in a one-dimensional matter, space, time, here only. And we miss the fact that much of reality is in the spiritual realm, and it is real, and it is powerful, and our God who dwells there communes with us now here. You know, so you say, well, this, this leaves us in a bad place, Pastor. If my heart is wrong and my mind is wrong, what hope is there of ever for me to worship God for who he truly is? How am I ever going to worship him? How am I ever going to come into his kingdom if this is who I am? And I'm saying that's who we are because that's what the Bible says. So what hope is there? God's right loving of us. God's right love. Giving us, by his grace, an eternal perspective. Look at the last point here. Look at verse 10. So Jesus, the test is done. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Right? They said, send them away. People, Jesus is saying, have them sit. Now there was much grass in the place. It's springtime, that's why. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. This test was over, and Christ was going to reveal his creative power. But he wasn't going to reveal his creative power. He was going to reveal something in verse 15 that I think is so profound for this passage, how much he really loves these people by what he says no to, by refusing to become the type of king they wanted to. So he has them sit down. It's springtime. They're sitting in the grass. And the picture, it's a beautiful picture. Those hills are usually dry, just like ours during the summer, but they're green in the Golan Heights. And there are thousands of people, literally thousands of people, the, the estimates are twenty to 25,000 because it was 5,000 men. You add a single wife and two children, you're at 20,000. Could have been upwards of 25. In other words, this entire hillside, the entire mountainside is covered with people. It's an extraordinary sight. And so Jesus says, we know this from Mark chapter 6 as well, he tells them to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And, that, and that's what they do. And so there's this sea of people in groups of 50s and 100s, and there's space there to walk for the disciples to get around because Christ is going to feed them. 
And so the stage is set for one of our Lord's greatest miracles. And it is, one of the reasons it's in all four Gospels is it's such an extraordinary miracle. It's unlike many of the others. Look at verse 11. He, Jesus took the loaves. These are the five barley loaves from the young man who remembered to bring his lunch. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, 20 to 25,000 people, so, they, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Now, those of you who know your Old Testament, you're thinking, this sounds very familiar. This sounds like when God fed the people with manna from heaven. They get this as well. They make this conclusion as well. In the desert, when the Israelites were starving to death and complaining against Moses, God brought bread from heaven. We're going to see more on that in two weeks. So I won't do too much on that now. But this is displaying Jesus' creative power, taking two, five barley crackers and two pickled fish and then giving thanks to God because it was God who was going to testify. Listen closely. It's not just, God, thank you for this food. He's thanking God because God is going to use this miracle to testify to his sonship, to him being the Savior of the world. So he gives God thanks, and then he this multiplies. It multiplies. And it was, according to our understanding of the timeline here, it was the first miracle of this type. The first miracle... Changing water into wine, it was a transformative miracle. He was changing things, right? The next two miracles that we've seen thus far, they were restorative miracles. He was healing brokenness, right? The the sick boy who was going to die and the lame man who could not walk. But this miracle, it's not transformative. It's not restorative. It is creative. It's creative. And somehow from these five crackers and these two fish, Jesus makes enough to feed twenty to 25,000 people with leftovers, it's incredible. And he doesn't, he doesn't even do it all at once. He doesn't, he doesn't have this prayer and you have this pile of crackers over here and this pile of pickled fish over here. And he says, come on up and grab from the pile. The miracle is so extraordinary. The disciples go out with baskets and they start to distribute. And as they're distributing the bread and the fish, they just keep multiplying. It's a continuous miracle that's happening in real time in their presence. And they're all seeing it and they're all experiencing it by eating the food. Just more fish, more bread, more fish. And it was so much, he said, do you want more? They said, yes, more, please. Because they had their fill as much as they wanted. Some of you would love that. An endless buffet. Amazing. It's just an amazing miracle. They had all that they wanted. And, and Christ so loving. He, look at how he blesses his disciples as well. Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, the people, he, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 baskets, one for each disciple to take with them as well. So he fed his servants, he fed the disciples. What a glorious, breathtaking display of power and majesty and love that this miracle reveals to us. Our Lord's miracles, they, were not, they weren't magic tricks. They weren't things you'd see in Las Vegas. They weren't done to dazzle people and create a sense of, of awe in, in, the, in the magical sense. His miracles all come out of a deep concern and compassion for people. They were always meeting someone's need. He saw them as people without a shepherd. So he healed their sick and their weary and he fed those who were hungry. And the Father used these to not only display His love, the Father's love for His creation. He cares about us. He cares about us. 
But more importantly, this miracle reveals the Father's love for our eternal state, our true hunger and our true thirst that Jesus does here, meeting our spiritual needs. Look at verse 14. These last two verses are so compelling. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed, there's no question here, this is in fact the prophet who is to come into the world. They got it. They said, this is, this is like the manna from heaven. This guy is doing things that God did through Moses. And so they make this connection. They're, they know enough about Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God said through Moses, this is what God said through Moses, I, God, will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's Christ. Peter confirms this in Acts chapter 7, verse 37 as well. He's talking about Christ, and they had enough sense about them, more so than the religious rulers. They had enough sense going, this has got to be the prophet that Moses was talking about. This has to be the prophet that God promised was going to come into the world. And so what do they want to do? What would you want to do? They said, let's make this guy king, right? Look at verse 15. Jesus is perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That was not uncommon. If the people wanted someone to be king, that person became a king. And now you're talking about 20,000 people that would come upon Christ. Now, he had the power, obviously, to stop that, right? But they saw, this is the prophet, he will come and what, what, why did they want to make him king? I mean, this guy, we're never going to be hungry again. We're never going to have to work again. We're never going to be sick again. This guy can come in, and if he can do this, then he can overthrow these, these horrible Romans that continue to oppress us year after year. This guy, we want him to be king, but for all the wrong reasons they wanted it. So he withdrew because he did not come to be a political leader. He did not come to be a medical doctor. He did not come to be a food pantry. That was not why he came. All those great miracles that he did, the feeding, the healing, all the things that he did were to reveal that he is the Messiah that came to live and die and rise from the dead. That's why he came. He came as their great shepherd to overcome their true hunger and their true thirst, which is spiritual. He came that he might set them free from the sin that they weren't even aware they were bound by. Look again at verse 2. Why did they go to him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, and they wanted him to continue to feed them, to continue to protect them, and continue to give them whatever they wanted at that point in time. But our, our Lord's love and the Father's love for them is so great that here they are, people in great need, and they were still in great need, and Jesus leaves. He withdraws because he knew that in order for them to have him as their king, he had to go to the cross first. And so he gave up his kingship temporally for the cross. This is the work that he did. He withdrew. Now, many today would see this, and I think it's one of the reasons that our outreach is so bad. They would see this and they say, you know, if he could relieve pain and suffering by healing people, if he could provide food for the hungry, if he could go so far as to set them free from the oppression of Rome, if he could do all that and he left and he didn't do it, then he's not loving. He's not loving. No one who loves would do that, right? And so we have, we have 
ministries, not from our church by God's grace, that go out and they engage in these things of feeding and healing and, and, and all those are so good, but the gospel's not there. And if Christ did not do those apart from the gospel, then so his church ought not to as well. So thankfully, our Lord's heart and mind, they were not contaminated by sin like ours. They were still sinless. And he understood what they did not, and many of us do not, that our greatest problem, saints, your greatest problem is not the backache that you have. It's not the cancer that you're battling with right now. It's not the, the, the fear that you may not be able to pay your bills or eat next month. It's not the fear that you may lose your job in this turbulent time. None of that is the greatest concern that you have. The greatest concern that you have is sin. Jesus understood that. The root of all the cause of all the suffering is sin. And so underneath all that we we want to be taken away, underneath all the suffering and the pain and the misery and the hunger and the oppression and the violence and the death that we now see, all of that, underneath that, is sin. And so Christ came to deal with that once and for all. Because not only is it sin that makes life miserable right now, it's sin that will condemn you to hell and make your life miserable forever. Christ understood that. God the Father understood that. God the Holy Spirit understands that. An eternal hunger and an eternal thirst and a pain and a suffering and an oppression that lasts forever and ever. And so he withdrew. Seemingly unloving from a worldly perspective, but the most loving thing he could do because in a matter of months... Depending upon the timeline, in a matter of months, he would enter Jerusalem. He would, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. He would go into Jerusalem to do the great work on the cross as the lamb to die for our sins. In fact, the great teaching we have from Isaiah 53, that Jesus Christ, he would become king. He would, but not yet. He had to go to Calvary first. He had to climb a cross first, and he had to suffer for us first. This picture is painted perfectly. In Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, listen to the prophet talking of Jesus now, Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? We are healed. Christ wanted to bring real healing. He wanted to overcome real hunger and real thirst and real oppression. But it wouldn't be done by by multiplying loaves of barley or passing out pickled fish. The only way this was going to happen now and forever is if Christ died for our sins. That we might not suffer an eternal state of hunger and thirst and oppression by our own sin. Christ knew that. So good for us. Because we never would have. We never even would have thought of it. He had our eternity on his mind. And so he goes to the cross and he receives from the Father the full wrath. It's an amazing statement. He drank the full cup that you and I and all who repent and believe deserve to drink. The full wrath. He experienced your eternal hunger. He experienced your eternal thirst. 
He experienced your forever and ever of pain and suffering. Everything he went through, he did as a result of bearing our sins in his body. Eternal separation from God the Father forever and ever. You know, the greatest poets in human history have not been able to capture the depth of the pain and the suffering and the woes of eternal separation from God the Father. They haven't been able to do it. Some have, some have written some beautiful pieces of work, but they haven't been able to because it is so bad. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the flame that never dies, spiritual bondage, oppression. They thought it was bad being under Rome. You may feel oppressed today. It's nothing. An eternal oppression and an eternal hunger, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. He did this, listen, so he could feed us. He did it so he could feed us more than barley and fish. He did it so he could give our, our starving souls real spiritual food. We'll see that in two weeks. He did it so he could give our parched, dying souls real water to quench the thirst. Jesus Christ did this to set us free from the sin that so binds us even today, even this day, to set us free. He did it to impute his righteousness to us, to give us his holiness, to make you and a sinner like me holy and righteous like him. Had he listened to them, had he listened to them, and had he gone back into Galilee and eventually Jerusalem and become an earthly king, he would have hated them. You say, well, but, but they would have had all the food they wanted and they would have been protected and they would have been healed. They would have been a very healthy, well-fed, fat people. And then they would have died and they would have all gone to hell. Hateful. Hateful. Without a lamb paying for our sins, my beloved, you can have the best life now. Paint the picture however you want to paint it and we'll paint them differently. I know that. If you're single, you say, if I could just get married. If your womb is barren, ladies, and you say, if I could just have a child. Those of you who are suffering financially, say, if I could just get a job that would be consistent so I could pay my bills. Those of you who are alone, you say, if I could just have a few friends. You paint paint your best life and then let it go on for the next 30, 40, 50, 100 years. Live to be 120 with your best life. We've all done it. We've all said, oh, if I could just, if I could just. And then on that day that you die, if there is no Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you come before God in your sins, a holy God, and you die forever. And I've said this before, your worst life now will be your best life in hell for eternity. Whatever we suffer now, by comparison to the eternal suffering, you can't compare it. And so Christ, I'm so thankful, his heart and his mind clear. I'm so thankful that he realized he had to not become our earthly king to become our eternal king. And then he withdrew that he might die, that we might be saved. Aren't you thankful for that? In Isaiah 53.10, it says that it was the will of the Father. Listen, these are hard words. It was the will of the Father to crush him. It was God's will to crush his son. He has put him to grief When his soul makes an offering for guilt, and that's what happened on the cross. The prophet had said it 800 years prior. When he makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, not his, he shall see his offspring. Now listen to this. 
He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. What was the will of the Father? That the Father desired to prosper in Jesus' hands. What was it? What was his will? It was the redemption of man. It was his church. It was you and me and all who repent and believe are to prosper in the hands of Christ. And what does that mean? And I'll close on this. It means that we'll stop wrongly seeking Jesus. It means that you, you won't continue with your, your, your passions and your desires to go to God to get a meal or to go to God to get a spouse. You'll stop just praying to God to use God because your circumstances aren't as you want them right now. It means that we will not treat the creator of the universe as a novelty act. We won't treat him as a byword. It means that we, his people, that will being exercised in the hand of Christ, we will come and we will repent and we will believe and we will follow Jesus. We will trust him and we'll trust him with everything. We'll trust him with our whole life. It means that we, his church, will rightly see him as the glorious king that he is and we will we will want him for him. We will love him because we love him. Not because your prayers are being answered or not answered. Not because you got the job or you got the spouse. Because of who he is, you will want him and you will love him and you will follow him because he's God and he saved you. That is the relationship that he desires for us. It means that, that we as a church will align our lives our home, our church, our workplace, our, our entire life with the word of God. We will say, Lord, how do you want me to live? And we won't wait for these silly signs that the culture talks about. We'll read the Bible and we'll submit to the Bible. What a foreign concept in the church today. If this is the word of God, this is his, this, he's spoken to us through the Bible. You say, well, how am I supposed to live? Read the Bible. Submit to the Bible by God's grace. We as a church will do that. It means that we will know that, that Jesus Christ, he's going to come again. And when he comes the second time, it won't be as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 was accomplished on the cross. He will come again with all the weight of all those passages in the Old Testament that talk about the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming with all the power of the Father and all the angels, all the heavenly hosts. And he's going to come down and he's going to bring his throne here to earth. And then he will reign. And we're supposed to live with that in mind. We're supposed to live that on that day when he comes, he will separate the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the chaff. And those that that are cast out, those who reject, and they do, they reject life, they will go to eternal condemnation. And those who know Christ, if you are saved, this is your end. Listen to this. With him in his presence forever and ever, Revelation 7, we shall hunger what? We shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. Now, he's not talking physical hunger. He's talking spiritual hunger. He's talking spiritual thirst. No more. Can you imagine no more longings like that in the depth of your soul? No more anxiety. No more fear. No more wondering. No more waiting. No more hunger. Neither any more thirst. The sun shall not strike us, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb, listen, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd, and he will guide us to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's your end in Christ. That's where I want to be in Christ. That's where I want you to be in Christ. And that's where we want everyone in our mission field to be in Christ. And that's why we share the gospel with the lost. 
That's why on this Thanksgiving, when you meet with your family, if they don't know Christ, share this hope. Share it with them. Let them hear the truth of the gospel of grace that they too might repent and believe and enjoy this rather than eternal, eternal condemnation, eternal thirst, eternal hunger. God wants our seeking hearts to be right, to seek him for him. He also, through the suffering of Christ, wants to sanctify our minds so we can stop thinking wrongly, overcoming the still one-dimensional approach within the church. Even in the church, we say, well, given the circumstances, the matter and the time and the space, you know, what are we? We're such a little church. What can we do? So little bread, so little money, so little time, so many people, so much suffering. What can we do? Go to Christ. We can go to Christ. And we can ask Him the very things that Peter and Andrew and John should have asked Him. For the very blessings that He wants to pour out in this church, on our families, in this community, and in this world. That Christ wants to pour out. Instead of living every day by sight, He wants us to live by faith. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 22 and following, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. That's the dead self, which is being corrupted by its sinful desires. And then in verse 23, he said, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and in true holiness. True righteousness and true holiness. Do you know that's your end and aim in Christ? To be as he is to be transformed into the image of the Holy One who is completely righteous and completely holy, and that's your end. It means that we can go to God daily with all of your anxieties. It's really interesting. Holiday season comes, people get more anxious. It's very telling. All your fears, all your troubles, and go to Him. Go to Him and say, You know, Lord... You can, Lord, that we can go before him and through prayer and supplication bring it all before God. And the Bible says the peace of God which transforms all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It transcends all understanding. It means that we, the most unrighteous, the most unholy, someone like me can go before the Lord And look at the fact that he fed 20,000 people. An impossible situation. And come before him and say, you can make me holy. You can make a sinner like me righteous. You can save someone as bad as me. By God's grace through faith, he does this great work. So God's will for all those in Christ is to be transformed heart and mind and soul into the Holy One. To be as Christ is, having your wrong seeking become right seeking, having your wrong thinking that things are impossible, to know that all things are possible through him who strengthens us. To see this miracle, this miracle, as a grand foretaste of the great feast that we will enjoy in the presence of God. Many of you this week are going to enjoy a meal, probably a bigger meal than you normally enjoy on a normal night. Many of you will gather with family and friends, and you'll sit around a table, and if you're a traditionalist like us, there'll be turkey, and there'll be stuffing, and if it's like my father's stuffing, you are blessed. There'll be mashed potatoes, and there'll be that 
that funny cranberry thing in the jar that you slice up. There'll be all those blessings around the table. And by God's grace, you will enjoy it. You'll revel in it, that time with family. All that time, as glorious as it is, it's still just a taste. It's a foretaste of the meal and the feast that God wants us to participate in with him forever. Forever. So at the end of the meal, when everybody goes home, or the next day, and you feel that sense of, it feels lonely today and quiet today, that's good. Take that loneliness and take that quiet and turn to Christ and say, there will come a day when that meal will never end. There will come a day when we will be in your presence and we will enjoy this feast forever and ever. I want to close by reading to you from Revelation 19, this glorious picture of you and me and God's church at this feast. This is John writing. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Listen to what they were crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Christ, has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Why? Because she's holy now. She's holy. Fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then in verse 9, it says, And the angel said to John, Write this. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you to be invited the supper of the Lamb. You have been invited this morning. Enough with the barley. Enough with the pickled fish. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe today that you might know Him now and enjoy Him forever at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a glorious, glorious miracle that you have shared with us through this testimony of the Apostle John. How grand, Father, that you would exercise it in the presence of so many and that through your Son testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That He is God. How glorious that we might hear it in the context this morning, realizing, Lord, that apart from you making us alive, we seek you for all the wrong reasons and we think of you in all the wrong ways. But by your grace, and it takes your grace, You make us alive. You give us new hearts and new minds and new desires to seek you for you, to know you, to love you and to be loved by you. By your grace and mercy, Lord, desire a better feast, better than the ones that we will enjoy this Thursday, better than the ones that we've ever had on this side, Lord, to look forward to that, that wedding feast when Christ comes again in glory, our glorious groom with his bride, the church, and we together forever worshiping, glorifying his most holy name. Lord, strike that in us now. Keep us from that one-dimensional thinking. Help us to see daily, Lord, that you are real and you are holy and Christ is good. Lord, I, I pray that we would live by faith and not by sight. We would not have the foolishness of Philip or Andrew or John. 
that we would be saints that are growing daily in the love and mercy of Christ, becoming holy as you are holy, because this is not impossible for you to make us a holy people. We praise you for this great work. We praise you for your Son and his incredible love for us. We praise you for your Holy Spirit that you would send him to dwell in sinners like us until that day when we come before you and he makes us perfectly holy. Thank you, thank you for being our God. And I pray that you would bless us the remainder of this day. In Christ's name, amen.